0: Enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. With the long-range weapon. A suicide bomb, a wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether you soul a some son, or BBC One, this information is a weapon of mass destruction. You could have Caucasian or Raphorean racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization, fear is a weapon of mass destruction. My dad came into my room holding his hat. I knew he was leaving. He sat on my bed, told me some. This facts. week on Mission Accomplishers, we are.
1: Re- replaying an event hosted by the left social Democrat caucus of the twin cities democratic socialists of america they host an event where professor david schultz gave a talk on bernie sanders and the future of democratic socialism in america and i joined professor schultz with my portion of the talk being on the rise of left-wing media going on in this country so sit back relax and listen to some lectures
2: I'd like to introduce uh, uh, Hunter Hawes. Uh, I want to thank him so much for helping to promote this, uh, get the word out. Uh, Hunter is co-host on AM 950 on Thursdays at 4 p.m. on Minnesota Progressive Repartee. And he hosts co-hosts Mission Accomplishers, Saturdays at 7 p.m. on AM 950. So please support uh, local independently owned media and radio. And Hunter will speak to us today about left-wing and independent media and the role it can
1: play in helping us uh, create democratic socialism. Yes, uh, I'm a left-wing talk radio host. And that, in and of itself, is a paradox. I mean, so much so that, I've never actually told this story before because I'm not comfortable talking about this over the air, but me personally, I'm in recovery, I'm a sober person. And I went to treatment like for uh, chemical dependency. And so during treatment we had uh, a group where we, we went around the room, 16 guys, and uh, the question was, uh, if you could do anything in life, what job would you do? And so they go around the room and most of them answer something like a rapper or um, like a millionaire or something like that. And the counselor encouraged, like said, yeah, you can do that, like sobriety comes first and you can accomplish that. So my answer was left-wing talk radio host. And my counselor, I kid you not, said, well, that's impossible. (laughs) I'm not kidding. He said, that is impossible. (laughs) so showed her uh so yes uh i'm a host on am 950 radio i host minnesota progressive repartee uh thursdays at four o'clock and our new show mission accomplishers starts at 7 p.m um but uh so i wanted to talk about left-wing media and um, i'm gonna focus specifically at first on radio because The fact that my counselor even had that notion that it was impossible for left-wing radio to exist or succeed, uh, that's not the case anymore. So where that stems from, though, is in the 90s, there was the Telecommunications Act, which allowed Clear Channel and Disney to buy up all of the radio stations. Um, So I, I was young at the time, but I still remember a time when the radio was interesting, like you could tune in. And uh, it, it, you had unique options, you didn't hear the same music, and you had interesting people talking. But after that Telecommunications Act, Clear Channel bought up everything. And now it's changed radio from a regional thing where you could travel across the country and tune in a station, and it would reflect the character of that area, where now you get the same playlist no matter where you are in the country. Um, and so at at that same time too we had the rise of rush limbaugh and um part of it is to do that with rush limbaugh's views are convenient to a clear channel but Rush limbaugh also is a talented broadcaster i'm not going to take that away from him he did gain popularity uh but the radio industry thought that's the only thing that could work so much so that you see it influenced in in sports talk or shock jocks, they have to share that conservative opinion. So, how our station came about, AM 950, was in 2003. There was a movement, uh, and it, it was it was the idea of starting uh, Air America, which was a network of it was left wing talk radio to combat what was going on. On right-wing talk radio and uh, Air America it did succeed to a certain degree there was times where uh, Al Franken was the flagship host on Air America and uh, there was many times that Al Franken beat Rush Limbaugh for the number one radio show in the country during that time but Air America had problems that their, their business model that they chose to use was networks across the country. So radio stations had to sign up for the entire Air America package and play their programming uh, of every single show. And that ended up being a mistake because uh, the company ended up going bankrupt. And when that happened, most of the hosts and the the stations that carried Air America, they, they, they changed format. now. At that same time, there was another company, and it was called Democracy Radio, and they syndicated shows rather than that network model. So you could pick up individual shows. And uh, they had uh, Tom Hartman as a program, uh, Ed Schultz, who passed away, but was a phenomenal left-wing talk radio host, and uh, Stephanie Miller. So some of these networks picked up some of those shows. So it stuck around, it wasn't completely extinct. Let's talk about Tom Hartman for a moment, because we're all here for Bernie Sanders and future democratic socialism. So Tom Hartman is the the old gun in this industry. He actually wrote a paper that inspired Air America in the first place, and he's been doing his show for, for over a decade, and uh, very important progressive talker. In fact, he used to have on uh, Bernie Sanders every Friday when Bernie was just an obscure congressperson, and that's really one of the main reasons that drove Bernie Sanders into the national spotlight from Not just being an obscure socialist congressperson, but to having a a nationwide audience and uh, so Tom Hartman has kept at this but since Trump we've seen a rise in the popularity of the format of left-wing talk radio so much so that uh, the problem is there isn't enough content for stations to cater the format. So uh, Tom Harman's currently the seventh highest rated radio program in the entire country as a progressive talk radio host. But um, And why that's remarkable is because when you consider the the Rush Limbaugh's, the Hugh Hewitt's, uh, who else, Dennis Prager, uh, they're in this infrastructure where in in certain markets there's four different radio stations carrying them whereas there isn't the infrastructure because still clear channel or i Heart radio if you want to call it that i won't call it that i call it clear channel but uh they they still own the entire marketplace virtually uh so tom hartman to get to that point has picked up on community radio and being played across the country so Uh, Shows like his, Democracy Now!, Stephanie Miller, uh, have used different avenues, but are still reaching tens of millions of people each week by doing it. They've overcame that stigma that being a left-wing radio host is an impossibility. Uh, But it was... I had a a chat with uh, my boss, Chad Larson, who uh our station is independently owned which is very 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 rare in radio like uh there's usually only a handful at most in any market in the country but independently owned, we had a a host retire uh stop his show recently norman goldman so i was a bit concerned i was like what does that mean for the format overall and uh chad told me he goes actually, we're doing fantastic. Right now, this is the highest ratings we've ever had, and across the country, similar formatted stations are doing so well that they need more programming. So that, that was what inspired this idea for this talk, was after talking with him after Norman left the air, then I'm like, wow, this is actually thriving. Uh, but we see it beyond just radio. Like uh, with with new media, with YouTube and podcasts, uh, that one of my favorite podcasts, and Brad doesn't like this podcast at all, but is uh, Chapo Trap House, and they are a, a leftist socialist comedy podcast. But they are the number one Patreon, and what Patreon is is a way that people can subscribe for premium content of shows, like support content creators and pay their model is uh, $5 a month. And uh, they make $100,000 a month just from people subscribing to the podcast for bonus content. So the left in, in new media, in podcasts, and now YouTube is growing fast. And it's, uh, it's, the momentum's unstoppable with it because for so long people were just starved of content like this because it wasn't allowed. But now that we have ways to access people, it's grown naturally. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is with YouTube, specifically, because the right wing was winning YouTube for a long time. And uh, it, because right wing talking points are very easy to edit into short little snippets and get their point across to people. So they would do things like, uh, SJW feminists loses their mind and spread their content that way so it, it was it worried me for a while it's like the right wing is really winning on YouTube but what's been happening lately that really encourages me is that people like um, ContraPoints is a great example but they make document or documentary style videos that are extremely informative and that access young people like sh- sh- her specifically will will take kind of like terms for memes or things that high school kids would say about issues like trans people or gay people so y- some things where you could walk in some very vile content but make it deliberately targeted to them in a documentary style where you come away going oh I guess I understand. The last thing to note, does anyone know what the Rubin Report is? You guys know what it is? So um, David Schultz talked about Trump, why he won was diagnosing those problems of the working class. And, and I agreed with that. And um, someone contacted Dave Rubin uh, about me, uh, saying that this guy doesn't call Trump a Nazi. He says the working class likes him. So I just got an email today from uh, Dave Rubin's producer about potentially going on and I'm like, oh yeah, I will take that opportunity in a second. So hopefully that pans out, but this was an awesome event. Thank you all for coming. This week on Mission Accomplishers, we're playing a talk that I participated in, hosted by the Twin Cities Democratic Socialists of America, the keynote speech by Professor David Schultz is Bernie Sanders and the future of democratic socialism in America. To find out more about the organization, go to TwinCitiesDSA.org and enjoy the presentation. I want to introduce Professor David Schultz of Hamlin
2: University, professor in political science here at Hamlin, and also a professor at the Hamlin and University of Minnesota Law Schools. As many of you know, he's frequently on local TV, national media, whenever anything happens, he's on one of the stations, quoted frequently in the Strib, uh, Pioneer Press, he's been frequently on Almanac, WCCO, MPR, Uh, his author of many frequent uh, books, Uh, his latest is Presidential Swing States, Why Only 10 States Matter, which just came out a little while. We'll probably have an updated version coming out soon. Okay, good. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Professor David Schultz.
3: Thank you very much. And as you know, it's going to be recorded. I think eventually what, AM 950 will, will run this, I hope, at some point. it um, will be able to reach an even broader audience. And so, yes, this is Bernie Sanders and the future of democratic socialism, the presidential race of 2020. And what I want to do is to sort of outline a few different things in terms of thinking about democratic socialism, but let me start with my talk. Some of you may recognize this quote. There is a specter haunting America. The Specter of Democratic Socialism. For those of you who have ever actually read Marx's Communist Manifesto, it's a takeoff of the opening line of the Communist Manifesto. And they quote this on purpose because in the same way that he was writing about what? The specter of communism um, affecting Europe in 1848. I want to talk about the specter of democratic socialism. And think about it. 160, 170 years ago, in the Communist Manifesto, considered to be a radical document, because at the time, what did it call for if you read the end of it? It called for what? Decent wages, progressive income tax, free education for all, the abolition of child labor, adoption of inheritance tax, policies against monopolies, and for fair treatment of workers pretty radical ideas when you think about it here. Uh, But I mention that because at the time that he was writing, these were considered to be radical ideas, considered to be out of the mainstream. And what was happening is that in the same way that his arguments then for those proposals were considered to be assaults on capitalism, today, many people describe as assaults on capitalism arguments for what? Universal health care, paid family leave, free college, the protection of voting rights, um, and a host of other measures that many people describe as what, perhaps what, just essential requisites for basic human rights. Talk of socialism, or at least democratic socialism, is in the air. Beginning, I think, most prominently in 2016 with Bernie Sanders' presidential run, we now have him again in 2020, running for president again, describing himself as a democratic socialist. Of course, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, a member of the DSA, um, has also put what the democratic socialist uh, program or banner into the public public scrutiny. Additionally, let's think about some public opinion polls, where I again can say the specter of socialism um, is reflected in those polls. In August, 2018 gallup poll pointed to the fact that 57 percent of democrats have a positive view of socialism while only 47 percent have a positive view of capitalism while generally older people have a positive view of socialism again according to the same gallup poll we have Only We have only a small percentage or a minority of those under the age of 29 who have a positive view of capitalism. More specifically, of those between the ages of 18 and 29, 51% view socialism positively. And even for those ages 30 to 49, 41% view socialism as positive. What we're getting at is a situation where we seem to be having A point where, unlike, and for reasons I'll explain, uh, even a generation ago, we're seeming to have a point where talking about socialism is no longer the taboo that it used to be. We're going to try to understand what has changed, what it really means um, in terms of this this shift in public opinion. But more importantly, what we're going to try to figure out is what exactly is meant by democratic socialism today because it's a phrase that's thrown around in lots of different ways. And so what we're gonna think about, what I wanna talk about today is specifically, what, what does it mean to be a democratic socialist today? And are Bernie Sanders and Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, are they, are they socialists? Are they democratic socialists? And equally as important, is democratic socialism something that Donald Trump needs to protect us from as he pointed out in his State of the Union speech this year? What I'd like to do today then is several different things. First, what I want to first talk about is why the renewed interest in democratic socialism, especially for a point where it seemed to have gotten into hiatus for many years. Second, is to talk about what democratic socialism has meant historically. Third, Talk a little bit about the creation of the DSA as a party, as an organization. Fourth, what it appears to mean today in terms of democratic socialism. And then finally, where does Bernie Sanders or where, the, where do Bernie Sanders and Alexander, uh, um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez fit in? That's going to be my talk for today, to outline kind of a history and program. So some of this is real politics. Some of this is what? History outlining where we've been and where we've gone. And what I want to start with is thinking about what I'm going to call the crisis of capitalism, where historical context is absolutely everything. And take us back to perhaps a period from 1945 to either 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, 1991, what? The collapse of the Soviet Union. But during that Cold War period, there were at least two generations, the silence, those born between 1925 and 1944, and the baby boomers, roughly born between 1945 and, and 1960 or 1964, were the words what? Socialism were a dirty name, a dirty word to be uttered. Socialism was equivocated with what? With the USSR and communism. Remember, it kind of went from what? It went from communism. To, social, to USSR, to, to socialism, to bad. Those were the linkage in terms of the words here. Socialism was viewed as what? An antithesis of capitalism and freedom. However, this was not democratic socialism of what we saw in the Soviet Union. The USSR um, was an authoritarian regime with no basic civil rights or individual rights. Yes, Yes, we could argue that the USSR guaranteed certain economic rights. But at the end of the day, for many of us in this room, I hope, who believe in democracy, who believe in fundamental human rights, the ability to have free expression, the ability to be able to write what you want, to be able to believe what you want, to have basic criminal due process procedures, all are also essential to what a democracy is supposed to be. But the fear, the fear of the USSR and equivocation of authoritarianism with communism and then with socialism was so great that the worst labels or names to call someone was what? A communist or a socialist. A little bit before my time, but not completely. There was the era of McCarthyism, of red baiting somebody. We had, before my time, but some of you might remember, the House Un-American Activities Committee investigating people because of what? Their political affiliations. The Attorney General's list of subversive organizations, where we put on that list not just people who were members of the Communist Party USA, but what? Martin Luther King Jr., labor leaders, civil rights protesters. Anybody who seemed to be advocating for what? Human rights, for a better working conditions, for what? Decency in our society, were labeled as what? As subversives, as communists, um, as socialists. And thus, it was easy to discredit people by saying what? That you were red or that you were a communist. And for a generation of people, any reference to socialism was basically labeling somebody as bad. But additionally, something else was going on between roughly 1945 and I'm going to argue the mid-1970s is that American capitalism was at its heyday. Now, Henry Luce, founder of Time and in Lo- in, in Life magazine um, in 1942, said that this would become America's century. And in many ways, he was correct that what happened after the after the World War II, until the 1970s, is that, guess what? It looked like U.S. capitalism delivered and delivered the goods. And for many people, it did. From 1945 to 1970, the gap between the rich and poor decreased dramatically. Social mobility was high. For many, again, way before my time, there was the story of what's called the Horatio Alger myth, that any of us could grow up to be president, any of us could grow up to be rich, to be to be what? The president of the United States. And the social mobility of the United States compared to our peers, and I mean our peers, other Western European-style democracies, was pretty good. Additionally, the general standard of living increased for many people. Multiple times. Material prosperity increased. Access to affordable higher education exploded. The returning veterans after World War II, we saw the expansion of what? Um, Higher education across America, especially public higher education. That was relatively inexpensive. And we forget that in the 1960s, we saw a dramatic expansion of the social welfare state. Medicare and Medicaid, dramatic increases in terms of access to health care. We saw food stamps, expansion of AFDC. Until the early 1990s, we saw what? A dramatic decrease in poverty. Michael Harrington, who I will come back and talk about later, Michael Harrington, the founder of the Democratic Socialists of America, wrote one of the greatest books, I think, in post-World War II America, uh, called The Other America. Proclaims in the early 1960s that we have essentially one-third of America, echoing um, FDR's 1936 speech, one-third of America ill-housed, ill-clothed, ill-fed, and that we had reduced our poverty levels, our uninsured levels, to about 10 or 11%. Not bad compared to what it was before. It looked like then, until the 1970s and maybe even as late as 1980, that capitalism was delivering the goods. It looked like it was actually working, and we were humanizing our economic system. Thus, by the time we get to 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, or 1991, the breakup of the Soviet Union, what? People like Francis Fukuyama, the intellectual, said, guess what? The end of history had arrived. We had won the Cold War. Capitalism had proved that it was successful. And there was no real viable alternative to capitalism. However, something happened along the way to change that narrative. It could have started in the 1970s but it clearly has accelerated during the Reagan era and even more so since 2009. Thomas Piketty, a few years ago, wrote a book called Capitalism in the 21st Century, stealing the title from Karl Marx's magnum opus. Piketty's no Marxist. And he points out that what? What we've seen since the 1970s is what? An undermining of of the the narrowing of the gap between rich and poor um, that had been occurring from 1945 to the 1970s. Phrased another way, he was saying that the gap between the rich and poor was exploding. We know now, and I'm not going to quote all the statistics today, we know now that the gap between the rich and poor in the United States is greater now than it's been since the 1920s, and there's some evidence to suggest what greater now than it's ever been in American history. Additionally, if part of the American promise was what? This great social mobility compared to our peers. Social mobility has largely ground to a halt in the United States. If we think of America as broken up into quintiles, top fifth, second fifth, middle fifth, fourth fifth, and bottom fifth, Um, for those who were born at the top fifth, only 9% fall to the bottom fifth. For those born in the bottom fifth, barely 8% ever make it to the top. For those in the middle class, people are just as likely, what, to go up as they are to go down. We have studies studies from the Congressional Budget Office and many others that point out for over a 40-year period We've seen from the 70s up until the present, the gap between the rich and the poor um, accelerate. What? that Those at the top income levels are now what? Had seen an increase of almost 300% in their income during that time. The middle class barely 64%, the poor um, less. The gap between what? CEOs um, and pay of average workers has exploded. The second week of April, The Financial Times, no radical newspaper, came out and pointed out that among the largest, 100 largest companies in the United States, 11 of them, the gap that we have between the income of the average worker and those at the top exceeds ratios of more than 100 to 1 and, in some cases, over 1,000 to 1, dramatically exploding. We know also during this time that what else has happened? Job production has fallen dramatically. And what I mean by that, if we were to look at the number of jobs being produced, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, and teens, it's gone down almost every every decade. We know also that there was a point, even through the 70s, if you didn't have a college education, you could get a job working for what? An auto assembly plant or work at a job at a steel mill which was unionized, and you could make a decent living and a decent wage in a union scale job. Those have largely disappeared. Barry Bluestone, Bennett Harrison, and their great, the deindustrialization of America, points to what? How mostly technology and anti-union animus led to the disappearance of 37 million manufacturing jobs in the United States. It's not so much about offshoring, it's about something else. We've seen what? The cost of higher education explode. About four years ago, we reached a critical point where what? Student loan debt exceeded credit card debt in the United States. It broke a trillion dollars. It's now at 1.5 trillion for student loan debt, and the projections are within the next three to four years, it'll be what? $2 trillion debt. Despite Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act. We still know there are millions without insurance or still can't afford it. And my last point, and you'll see where I'm going here, is that for many people, they experienced after 2009, what, the loss of their house, the loss of their job. For many of my college students, they saw their parents taking a major hit in 2009. The point that I'm getting at is that during that time, Even though Obama is revered by some people, what was the approach that the Obama administration took? Bail out the banks and not working class or homeowners. What I'm getting at is that for people ages perhaps 18 to 49, capitalism doesn't exactly look like it's delivering the goods anymore. That instead, what? Something else is needed. Something else, and maybe something like socialism, makes sense. Thus, my point that objectively, the conditions that were in place two or three generations ago, during the heyday of American capitalism, during America's century, at a time when our adversary was an authoritarian regime, gives us different perceptions of how to think about about socialism. All right, so what is historically democratic socialism, since we now seem to have, according to the public opinion polls, more interest and support for socialism? Well, I'll try not to get into the intricacies of all the historical debates, but we do have to go back to Marx, because it really starts with Karl Marx. To simplify Marx's theory, Marx argued that the core problem of capitalism was a class exploitation and conflict between um, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, where the latter, that is the workers, um, were forced to sell their labor power um, to, to the bourgeoisie. It was a system in which what Marx described as what would happen is that the bourgeoisie owned the means of production, and over time their race to maintain profits would increasingly lead what? Replacement of workers with technology. Maybe if he had been writing today, he might've said robots. Um, 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 And therefore, capitalism would eventually what? Drive more and more people into poverty, what's called the immiseration thesis. He prophesized that this economic crisis would eventually produce revolutionary fervor and lead the the proletariats into revolutionary action that would overturn capitalism. His theory, as then expanded by people such as Lenin, was that the Communist Party would serve as what? Would serve as the vanguard of the working class to lead a revolution. That's one story. That's the one story that eventually creates what? Creates the version of, let's say, authoritarian, Um, economics that we saw in the USSR. But at the same time, there was a a different tradition that started to emerge. Late in the 19th century, individuals such as Edward Bernstein wrote in the classic book, Evolutionary Socialism, argued that the revolutionary tactics and economic inevitability of the revolution was not practical or certain. In part, Marx made a great diagnosis of what was wrong with capitalism, but his theories in the hands of Friedrich Engels almost made it seem as if the inevitability would, would move us into another stage. And what Bernstein argues is no, that socialism was not inevitable by the laws of history. Instead, he argued that, that politics and ethics were important, he argued, or rather agreed with Marx on much of the criticism, but argued instead that socialism was a political and, more importantly, an ethical imperative. It was an imperative about appealing to principles of justice and fairness. Additionally, he argued that the tactics for, for socialism could be electoral, that, that we could, in fact, through getting universal franchise. Through proper organization that we could in fact, what? Legislate or elect socialism into, into power and transform capitalism, not by revolutionary, but by what? Evolutionary means. Moreover, what Bernstein argued along with others such as what? Such as Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Kotsky, and Leon Trotsky, is that what socialism was about at the end of the day was democratic control of the economy, which is critical for something I want to point out here, is because that notion of democratic control of the economy is going to be a big dividing line between what I'm going to argue is socialism versus welfare state capitalism. John Stuart Mill and the principles of political economy, writing at a time where he's a rival in many ways of Karl Marx, says that, well, perhaps the evils of capitalism can be what? Can be addressed simply by taxation and by redistributive politics. Perhaps. Bernstein, the socialist, said, no, something more is required. It is the actual democratic control. That sounds like what? A radical solution, but not necessarily. Robert Dahl one of the stalwarts of American political science for very, very many years, wrote in his magnum opus, Democracy and its Critics, in 1989, that we're on the verge of a third generation of democracy. If first-generation democracy was the agora in in ancient Greece, second-generation was representative democracy, the third generation was going to be what? Democratization of the workplace, of the economy. Charles Lindblom, also at Yale University, a stalwart, writes in 1976 in his book, Capitalism and Markets, about what? The undeserved, ill-placed role of corporate power in democracy. And concludes in his book that the corporation fits oddly into what? Democratic theory. In fact, he concludes in his final statement, corporate power can't be reconciled with a democracy. And Robert Lane, the other person at Yale, talks about what? The increasing alienation of the workplace. I mention this because these were three of the most mainstream political scientists one could think of, who at the end of their careers basically said, capitalism isn't working anymore. That the way that the system is set up isn't properly working. When we think about them, what was happening? is a criticism was emerging with, with Bernstein, and then eventually later on in the 70s and 80s with American political science that something was wrong. But our notion of what democratic socialism historically was, was about what? This idea of democratic control of the economy. The idea of taking the principles of democracy that we all come to ex- expect, voting, equality, rights, merging that with an ethos of human dignity and respect. And that becomes the core of what democratic socialism is about. When we think about the United States, we oftentimes forget that Bernie Sanders isn't the first to talk about socialism in America. Come May Day, People forget the fact that May Day, International Workers' Day, grows out of the Haymarket Affair in Chicago in the United States with worker agitation. There are people such as Eugene Debs, um, who in the latter part of the 19th and early 20th century talk about uh, labor rights, the rights of people. Eugene Debs runs for president of the United States at one point, arrested in the Atlanta Penitentiary and get several million votes running for President of the United States. We had Norman Thomas running multiple times in the 1930s as rivals to Roosevelt. And then we had Michael Harrington. Michael Harrington, along with people such as Dorothy Day in New York, um, coming out of sort of the, the, the religious left, talking about the importance of what? Of, of merging religion theology, um, economics. When we get to the history of the DSA, the DSA is fascinating. In the late, or rather early 1970s, you have a, 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 a fissure on the left in the United States. You've got on the one hand, the social, um, uh, uh, American Socialist Party, along with um, um, a couple of other Socialist Party, USA, um, um, splitting. There's a concern that what? That the socialists are moving to the right. That they're abandoning economics and talking about other issues. We have emerging in the 1970s a thing called DSOC, the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. A reaction to this rightward move, an abandonment, of what seemed to be socialist politics talking about economics in America. And by the time we get to 1982, Michael Harrington, along with several others, um, become at the forefront of merging the DSOC along with the New American Movement to form what? To form the Democratic Socialists of America. It was an effort to do what? To unite labor, progressives, and the old left. Because one of the concerns was that what? The shift in 1960s politics, while necessary and important to talking about civil rights, had stopped talking about what? Class. Stopped talking about economics. And if we think about where the Democratic Party has moved, especially during the Clinton era, class but all disappeared from what was going on in terms of a discussion. Enter Bernie Sanders. He appears not out of nowhere. People have to remember that he was what? A mayor of Burlington, Vermont, a member of Congress. He's a member of the House of Representatives, um, a U.S. senator. He had spent an entire career um, in reaction to the movement of the Democratic Party, which is why he was an independent, why he was a socialist. And when he starts to come out, he starts to describe what he thinks and what he considers to be um, socialism in 2016. And let me quote, actually in 2015. And what democratic socialism is about is saying that it is immoral and it is wrong that the top one-tenth of 1% in this country own almost 90%, almost own as much of the wealth as the bottom 90%. That it's wrong today in a rigged economy that 57% uh, um, of all new income is going to the top 1%. That, still quoting Sanders, that when you look around the world, you see every other major country providing health care to all people as a right, except the United States. You see every other major country saying to moms that when you have a baby, we're not going to separate you from your newborn baby because we're going to have, we're going to have medical and family paid leave like every other country on earth. For Sanders, his meaning of democratic socialism um, is what, economic justice and the leveling of the opportunities and the income gap between the rich and poor. This is what he thinks it is. This is what in many ways uh, Alexander um, um, Cortez also describes it to be. However, is that democratic socialism? Yes and no. Historically, It's not what we meant by democratic socialism, because they're talking about still what? Redistributive politics. They're talking about what? What John Stuart Mill, what the economist John Maynard Keynes, they're talking about what? What liberals, what the left of the Democratic Party used to talk about in terms of what? The welfare state. Now, it's not my job today to get into sort of a quibble and say, this is orthodoxy in terms of democratic socialism or it's not orthodoxy. That's a great debate to have here. Um, But what is important, I think, is that what Sanders is raising, is raising a critique against the two major parties. Think about what has happened and partly why it explains the Trump phenomena. From 76 to 2016, working class America saw their jobs disappear, saw their incomes erode. They voted for Republicans and nothing happened. They voted for Democrats and nothing happened. Some billionaire comes out of nowhere and says, I'm gonna do something. Running against a mainstream Democrat who doesn't really want to talk about class, doesn't want to talk about, about economics. That's in part why Trump won. But what we forget is that Sanders was talking about those same issues too, but approaching it from a very different perspective. And and this is where I think we have an opportunity. This is where I think there is an important, important point now in time, is that we have incredible numbers of people who are frustrated with where the US economy is. Who are frustrated with the fact, as I mentioned before, that the gap between the rich and the poor, the social mobility has exploded, that college is no longer affordable. People worry about what? Paying back their loans, how to take care of their children or their parents if they're sick. There is a sense in which, this is Bernstein's point too, that people are concerned about some basic issues of what? Basic issues of human decency and ethics. Now, I would love to see a serious debate about democratic control of the economy. There are many like me who think that redistributive politics are okay, but we probably have to go further than that and think about serious control of of, over our major corporations, limiting their ability to influence our political process. But at the very least, what Sanders is doing is raising some important questions. What he's also telling us is that socialism is what our democratic socialism it's not what a central planned economy directed from the top one of the great books if anybody has ever read it alex nove many years ago wrote a brilliant book called the economics of feasible socialism i encourage all of you to read it it is a book that talks about how in a democratic socialist society we have lots of different types of businesses some state-owned some local businesses, all types of mixes. That is what he's gonna argue is part of the essence of merging what? How to merge and make the economy compatible with democracy. And so if I were to close, and I'm going to do so, it is to say that part of what democratic socialism is about is to ask how do we make the economy serve the goals of a democratic society? How do we make our political system accountable to the people? How do we create a political system, which is one that serves those concepts of ethics and justice? That is what Sanders is raising. And I think as we're seeing now going into the 2020 election cycle, when we now have incredible percentage of the American public saying, I'm open to socialism and a discussion about this. And at a time, at least as a time of this talk, where Bernie Sanders is what? The leader among the candidates in the Democratic Party. There is an opportunity to have a real debate about the economy and socialism in ways that I can't recall in my lifetime so far. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for joining us and you can find this as well as every other episode of mission accomplishers as well as all the other am 950 programming at am950radio.com
4: Taken untold millions that they never toil to earn But without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn That the union makes us strong
5: In a bloody fight round this whole world tonight, in the battle the bombs and shrapnel rain. Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down, but our union's gonna break them slavery chains. Our union's gonna break them slavery chains. I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky, could see every farm and every town. I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down That's a union that'll tear the fascists down When I think of the men and the ships going down While the Russians fight on across the Don There's London in ruins and Paris in chains. Good people, what are we waiting on? Good people, what are we waiting on? so i thank the soviets and the mighty chinese vets the allies the whole wide world around to the battling british thanks you can have ten million yanks if it takes them to tear the fascists down 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 if it takes them to tear the fascists down but when i think of the ships and the men going down and the russians fight on across the don there's London in ruins and Paris in chains. Good people, what are we waiting on? Good people, what are we waiting on? So I thank the Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets, the Allies, the whole wide world around. To the battling British, thanks. You can have ten million Yanks if it takes them to tear the fascists down, down, down. If it takes them to tear the fascists down.
1: As always, remember, prosecute the Bush administration for war crimes. We're coming for you, bastards.
0: Whether long-range weapon or suicide bomb or wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether your soul is son or BBC one misinformation is a weapon of mass destruction. You could have Caucasian or Asian, Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization, fear is a weapon of mass destruction. My dad came into my room holding his hat. I knew he was leaving. He sat on my bed, told me some facts, son. I have I know do. the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. The responses have got to end in order for us to get the, the, the framework, the groundwork, not framework, the groundwork to discuss a framework for peace, to lay the all right. We are not at war with Muslims. We don't have a beef with Muslims. We want to be friends with Muslims and Muslim children we fighting evil people. It's important for the boys and girls of Thurgood Marshall to know. That we're fighting evil with good. And one way to fight evil with good is you can help by writing letters to boys and girls your age. Fool me once, shame on, shame on you. If fool me, we can't get fooled again.